Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2012. Titled, Growing in Christ, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 4, October 20-26, Salvation, the Only Solution. Sabbath, October 20. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again this week. As we listen, as we read, as we understand, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. Salvation is the only solution, and that solution you have provided for us. As we delve into its depths, we pray that we may once again catch a glimpse of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text for this week is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's read that again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And our key thought this week is, the sin problem is very big. How thankful we should be that the solution was big enough to solve it. The sin problem refers to the crisis caused by the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which brought to the earth the great controversy between good and evil. God's part in the controversy has been to stop and ultimately eliminate the deleterious effects of sin, not just on the earth, but on the creation as a whole. God's action to rescue the creation from the destructive results of sin constitutes the doctrine of salvation. And though that battle, at least in terms of salvation, does play out here on earth, the great controversy motif has shown us that the issues are literally universal. The doctrine of salvation primarily concerns God and his work to save us, of course. But humanity has an important role too. Yes, God has made an incredible provision for the salvation of the human race. Our crucial part comes in the answering of the question, what will be our response to that provision? On that answer, the eternal destiny of souls truly hinges. Sunday, October 21, The Scope of the Problem Because salvation is God's solution to the problem created by sin, the extent of sin's damage determines the scope of the solution. After all, it wouldn't be a solution if it was unable to solve the problem, no matter what the size of the problem. Question. What do the following texts reveal about the scope of the sin problem? How have you experienced it yourself or seen around you the reality of these texts? First of all, John 2.25, And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And Psalm 59 verse 2, Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. And Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? 
And Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And James 5, 1-7, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming unto you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fatted your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And then Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 23. And that reads... Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man? And finally, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. And that reads, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Who among us hasn't known deeply, personally and painfully just how bad the sin problem is? We live every moment of our lives with the reality of sin and its effects. Every aspect of human existence on this planet is, to some degree, a great one in fact, dominated by the reality of sin. From politics to the innermost recesses of the human heart, sin has infected the race. It is so bad that, without a divine solution, there would be no solution. How grateful we should be that the solution has been given. It's called the plan of salvation, and its purpose is to solve the sin problem. Monday, October 22, God's Provision, Part 1 The effects of sin did not wait for a grace period. The results of sin were immediate and needed immediate attention. It was necessary, therefore, for some kind of provision to be in place when sin manifested itself. Ellen G. White expresses it so clearly in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 1, page 1084. As soon as there was sin, there was a saviour. Christ knew that he would have to suffer, yet he became man's substitute. As soon as Adam sinned, the Son of God presented himself as surety for the human race, with just as much power to avert the doom pronounced upon the guilty as when he died upon the cross of Calvary. Question. What do the following texts tell us about the plan of salvation and when it was established? What great hope and promise can we take from the texts ourselves? First of all, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And then Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will." And Second Thessalonians two thirteen to fourteen. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Revelation 13, verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Dwell on the implication of these verses. What are they saying? Basically, from eternity, provisions had been made by God for the problem of sin. Though God did not foreordain that sin would occur, if he had, he would be responsible for it, a horrific and blasphemous idea. He knew that it would. So, back in eternity, he made the provision to meet it. This is biblical predestination, which is radically different from predestination as is commonly understood. It was God's plan from eternity that all human beings would have salvation in Jesus. The fact that some reject this salvation doesn't annul the force or the breadth of the provision. It only adds to the tragedy of what it means to be lost in the face of what has been done for us. So to finish today, dwell on the amazing truth that from eternity, God's plan was for you personally to have salvation. Think about what that means. In what way should a truth like this impact your life? Tuesday, October 23, God's Provision, Part 2 Throughout salvation history, from the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, through to the early sacrificial system in Genesis 4.4, the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, and the Israelite sanctuary service in Exodus 25, everything was to point to and climax in the life, death, resurrection, and heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ, God's ultimate provision to solve the sin problem. The seriousness of the sin problem can perhaps be best understood only when we grasp just what it took, the cross, in order for it to be solved. The cross alone proves the utter futility of humanity to solve the sin problem by itself. An extreme situation called for an extreme solution, and the death of Christ, God bearing in himself our sins, is about as extreme a measure as could possibly be imagined. Question 
Christ's sacrificial death is presented in Scripture as an atonement for sin, that is, the means by which the sin problem in all its manifestations is ultimately dealt with. How does the death of Christ provide for humanity's need of salvation? Explore this question from the following perspectives. Justification, reconciliation. Sanctification, regeneration. Glorification, assurance of resurrection to eternal life. First of all, justification, reconciliation, right standing before God. We'll start with Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And Zechariah 3, 1-4 Now he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And then we deal with 
sanctification, regeneration, living right before God. And our first text is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 8 to 11. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And finally, glorification or the assurance of resurrection to eternal life. And our first text is John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And in first John chapter five verses nine to thirteen. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And finally, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So to finish the day, dwell more on the fact that sin is so bad that it took the cross to save us from the ultimate result, eternal death. How should keeping the cross before us at all times be a deterrent to sin?
Wednesday, October 24, The Experience of Salvation, Part 1. The sinner is justified and reconciled on the objective basis of Christ's atoning sacrifice for all, as expressed in Romans 5, 6-10. The provision that God has made for the justification and reconciliation of humankind to himself through the death of Christ needs, however, to be brought into the experience of the believer. It is not enough to just have a theoretical knowledge about justification. We need to experience what it means for ourselves. Question. Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 bring up repentance as the beginning of the sinner's experience of salvation. How does the nature of repentance as a feeling of remorse help us to connect the experience of justification with the death of Christ? Well, first of all, we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 3, verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Ponder the following comment from the Ministerial Association of General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in the book Seventh-day Adventists Believe, page 135 and 136. Nothing so touches the depths of the soul as a sense of Christ's pardoning love. When sinners contemplate this unfathomable divine love displayed on the cross, they receive the most powerful motivation possible to repent. This is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Question. Read Romans 3, 23-25 and Ephesians 2, 8. What is the role of faith in the experience of salvation? First of all, Romans chapter 3, verses 23-25. to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are told in the Bible that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have also seen that contemplating the love of Christ motivates a person to repentance. Repentance, then, is not the special prerogative of a privileged few. In view of these facts, the importance of the study and the contemplation of God's word in the experience of justification cannot be overemphasized. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance and justification. Thus, if I should repent of sin and experience justification, God is the one to receive the credit. Salvation, then, is truly a gracious gift from God, for, indeed, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. So to finish today, what are some tangible and practical ways in which you may flood your heart and mind with the goodness of God, especially as you think of what He has done for you and what He has spared you from?
Thursday, October 25, The Experience of Salvation, Part 2. The experience of justification places within the life of the believer spiritual realities that initiate change in the person's life. In justification, the sinner is forgiven, Luke 7.47, Ephesians 1.7 and Romans 4.7, acquitted of the charges of sin and reckoned righteous, Romans 5.16 and 18, Romans 8 and verse 1, and given the gift of a new life, Ephesians 2.1-5 and 2 Corinthians 5.17. The foundation of this new experience is the reality that no matter our past, no matter our sins, no matter how faulty and wrong we have been, we can stand pardoned, forgiven and cleansed before God. Think through what this means. Christ's death covers all sin, even the worst, no matter how much your own heart might condemn you. When you surrender yourself to Christ in faith and accept his perfect life instead of your own filthy rags, then you are at that moment covered in Christ's righteousness. His perfect life is credited to you as if it were yours. Talk about a gift, especially to a sinner. The question is, how can something like this happen to a person and that person not be radically changed? That change, often called the new birth, is part and parcel of the experience of salvation. Question. Read the texts in the above paragraphs and summarize their teachings about justification and the way in which we experience it in our own lives. Well, first of all, Luke 7:47. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is given, the same loves little. And then Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Romans 4 verse 7 Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Romans 5, 16 and 18 And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offences unto justification. Therefore, as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And finally, 
Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. The experience of forgiveness ends the sinner's vulnerability to God's wrath and clears away any barriers to reconciliation and fellowship between God and humans. A new life opens up for the sinner who has the privilege of living in fellowship with Christ under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is the prerequisite for entering into the experience of forgiveness and justification and it comes accompanied by confession and baptism. This helps to explain the fact that although forgiveness is available to all, not all will be forgiven. So, to finish the day, where would you be if you couldn't lean on the promise every moment of your life that your acceptance with God is based on what Jesus has done for you and not on yourself or your own performance and law-keeping? Friday, October 26. From the book Desire of Ages, page 22, we read, The plan for our redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal, Romans 16.25. It was an unfolding of the principles that from eternal ages have been the foundation of God's throne. God did not ordain that sin should exist, but he foresaw its existence and made provision to meet the terrible emergency. So great was his love for the world that he covenanted to give his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Think about how bad sin must be that it took the death of the Creator himself to solve it. What does the cross reveal to us about the utter inability of humanity to save itself? What do we think we could add to what has already been done for us? 2. Some believe in what is called the subjective atonement, the idea that nothing about the cross changed our standing with God. Rather, the whole point of the cross was, they claim, to change our attitude about God, nothing more. What's terribly deficient about such a theology? What does it say about the problem of sin if all it would take is an attitude of judgment on our part to solve it? 3. How possible is it to have a good deal of knowledge about salvation and yet not the experience of it? What do you make of Ellen White's comment that consecration to God must be a living, practical matter, not a theory to be talked about, but a principle interwoven with all our experience. From our High Calling, page 243. How do we, on a daily and practical level, live out the experience of salvation? And four, dwell on the role of salvation in the context of the great controversy. Why does Satan want to keep as many people as possible from having salvation in Jesus? What are the means he uses against us, and how can we defend ourselves against them.
Inside Story Our First Choice I'm a Christian, but not a Seventh-day Adventist. My husband follows a different religion. We chose to send our two sons to Zamboanga Adventist Elementary School in the Philippines because we wanted them to study in a school with strong moral values. We looked at several schools, most of which had better facilities, but we chose the Seventh-day Adventist School. Our boys like this school. They join Pathfinders and really enjoy the activities. The children and teachers are so friendly. I love working with the parents and teachers. We really are a family. Our children are learning to be leaders as they take part in chapel programs and other activities in the school. They enjoy Bible class and memorize many Bible texts. My husband even joked that our son could become a pastor because he has learned so many Bible verses. Even though I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, I believe in Adventist education, and I thank God for this school and what it has meant to our children. That comes from Feli Bawari from Zamboanga in the Philippines. In 2009, part of your 13th Sabbath offering helped to complete a new building for the school in Mindanao so that it could offer secondary education as well as elementary education. Thanks to your offerings, Zamboanga and Venice School is reaching many more students and parents with God's message of hope and love. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember... God is still faithful.